Hey everybody, uh, welcome back to the Duke Wisdom Podcast, and uh, happy Earth, Wind, and Fire Day. I know this isn't going to drop on Earth, Wind, and Fire Day. Usually it would, but I'm recording on Earth, Wind, and Fire Day, and it's going to come a, a day late. Man, I really, I don't know what it is about about the 21st of September. I just, I, I love posting about the fact that it's the 21st of September. I, I really don't know what's wrong with me when it comes to that, but I just really get hyped up because, man, who doesn't love some Earth, Wind, and Fire? Who doesn't love Earth, Wind, and Fire now? But things are starting to ramp up. You're starting to see those preseason magazines, uh, the Lindy Sports magazine hitting the uh, the shelves. And uh, Actually, I want to talk about that a little bit. I've got a bit of a quarrel with, with that. I've been picking up the Lindy Sports magazine for, I mean, I don't know, over a decade at least, every year. And, you know, sometimes there's some questionable decisions in there. Um but they had they do a top ten front courts and a top ten back courts every season, and they have Duke's back court tab is the number nine in the country, which I highly disagree with. You talk about bringing back your two starting guards and Tyrese Proctor, who's a projected like top ten pick, and Jeremy Roach, who's a senior uh, leader, averaged thirteen points per game last season. Bring both of them back, and then add Jared McCain and Caleb Foster, who a lot of people think are first round talents. And you've also still got your backup guard from last season in Jalen Blakes. He's now the fifth guard in rotation. That's not even mentioning Jaden Shute. Ninth best backcourt? I, I would have tabbed Duke first, you know, or at least top three. But but then they did have Duke first in front courts, which I thought was a bit odd. I think Duke's front court's going to be phenomenal next season. Kyle Filipowski, Mark Mitchell, Ryan Young, Sean Stewart will all be fantastic. But I thought it was a bit that they uh, had the front court first back court night. I, th- I think the back court overall is much stronger than the front court, but maybe that's a testament to the fact that it, it may be a guard year. I know that, you know, like the field of 68 put out it's, it's uh, almanac or whatever uh, last season. And it was the year of the bigs, you know, um, Zach Eady's still around Armando Baycott still around, but Hunter Dickinson's still around. All those guys are still here. Uh, Oscar Sheway's not, but most of those guys are still, around but the difference is it just doesn't seem to be revolving around the big it seems to be more of a guards win in march and we're realizing that guards win in march and i think duke has a perfect guard core uh, to look forward to that can help them win in march this season uh just wrote an article uh that dropped ranking the top 15 players of 2020s so i do want to go over that a little bit i'm going to go over that and then i'm going to rank uh, each of the last 10 seasons for Duke, um, so that's from the 2013-14 season through last season, I'm going to rank all 10 of those teams as well in uh, this episode. One other thing, uh, Kyle Filipowski just announced that he is officially back in practice. He is fully back, so two-hip flip is ready to go. Lundy Sports is preseason ACC Player of the Year, by the way. I don't want to spoil too much if you want to go uh, pick up a copy uh, of the magazine, you probably find one at, at, at Barnes and Noble or somewhere like that. That's where I've got my copy of it. But I'll jump in to the the top fifteen. So last season, uh, I think in August last year, I released the top ten players of the twenty twenty so far uh, for Duke, and it was ten DJ Stewart, nine Trevor Keels, eight AJ Griffin, seven Cassius Stanley. Six, Mark Williams, five, Matt Hurt, four, Wendell Moore, 
three Vernon Carey, two Trey Jones, one Paulo Boncaro. And I held myself to that and I said that I wouldn't change that order at all in the updated list this season. So it's the fourth year of the 2020s. And so I upped the amount of players from 10 to 15. Next, I, I plan to do this list every year and, and update it accordingly. And next year, I'll keep it at 15. And then I think after the 24-25 season, that'll be the sixth year of the decade. I'll up it to 20 guys and I'll keep it at 20 guys after the seventh year. And then after the eighth year, I'll go up to 25 and I'll keep it that way through the ninth and the final ten, and the tenth and final season. And I'll have the final top 25 players in the 2020s. Um, so I kept those players in that same order. I didn't mix it up. I just inserted uh, the players that earned a spot from last season where I thought they should go. And so basically last year's starting lineup is appears on this list. I had three honorable mentions listed. Those are Jordan Goldwire, Dariq Whitehead, and Ryan Young. But ultimately, I thought that Goldwire just didn't have the offense for it. Uh, a, a great defender. And I think if he had decided to use his fifth year at Duke, I think he would be on this list. Um, but he just misses. Dariq Whitehead also just misses. I mean, probably just barely. Probably the, maybe even the first guy off this list. Um, had a fantastic year. Um, but not the year that he thought he would, that, that he should have, and that maybe he should have had if it wasn't for injuries and kind of a blurred role. Uh, I think Whitehead was one of the most talented players on, on last season's team. And I think in a different universe, he was the team's best or second or third best player. Um, that wasn't the case and he falls just short. Ryan Young had a really great season as well. I think honestly, if, he had ended playing the same role he was playing halfway through the season. Ryan Young would have been 15th on this list. Um, but, you know, his minutes dropped toward the end of the year. I'm not going to say that he can't find his way onto this list next season. I don't think it's likely because of how deep the team is. I don't think he'll put up the numbers necessary, but I think it's definitely possible. You know, uh, podcast Rye, Rec League Ryan, Uncle Ryan, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he's, he's, got a, he's got a good chance at making a push for the number 15 spot at this time next year. Want to join a community of Duke accounts publishing news, theories, and predictions on Duke athletics? Join the Duke Wisdom Network. Just go to dukewisdom.org slash join network today and fill out the form with your name and social media. Or you can DM at Duke underscore wisdom on Twitter or Instagram. Become a part of the community of Duke fans publishing their takes today. Again, that's dukewisdom.org slash join network or DM at Duke underscore wisdom on Twitter or Instagram. But at 15, I went with Derek Lively. Uh, I went Derek Lively at 15, only five points per game, five rebounds per game, uh, but he did block 2.3 shots per game or maybe 2.4 shots per game. Uh, Either way, he was second in the conference, only to Jesse Edwards from Syracuse. Uh, All ACC defense, all ACC freshmen, Lively struggled to to find his footing in the paint as a back-to-the-basket player. And I think he will, he's just not that player. That's not who he is. And so he really struggled to find an identity offensively because the only time he was scoring was on lob plays and on putback dunks that happened far too infrequently that he should have been involved on more lob actions, sort of like Mark Williams. Mark Williams didn't have much of a back to the basket game either. I think a little bit more so than, than Lively had, but not a lot. He shot more mid-range jumpers. Lively didn't really do that. Lively tried some threes, but only shot 15.4%. Um, 
And so it was because he struggled to find an offensive identity and he, the team struggled to find a way to incorporate his above the rim kind of action consistently. He had to find that identity defensively. And he earned this spot almost exclusively because of his defensive prowess. He was a phenomenal shot blocker, maybe one of the best shot blockers in Duke basketball history. I'd put him right up there with Sheldon Williams and, and Mark Williams. And Lively was just the defensive anchor for that for last year's Duke team. And when he wasn't on the court, it was a completely different team. And frankly, it was a much worse team. Lively became a, a very integral part of that team's success and was a big reason why they ended up winning the ACC tournament. So I had him at 15, uh, and a lot of people honestly probably would have stuck him at 14. But I was a firm believer that there was one guy that was probably better than Lively, but most people weren't saying it by the end of the year. And that was who I had at 14, and that's Mark Mitchell. Mark averaged nine points per game last season. And he, I mean, Mark Mitchell is such a, has the ability to be such a high-level scorer. He was the highest scoring player in the McDonald's All-American game back in 2022. And he can, you know, cut up through the paint like a Swiss army knife. He's athletic and get above the rim and he can shoot the ball. I mean, shot 35% from three. That's really solid, especially given the kind of shaky shot uh, mechanics sometimes, but he's, he's a really good player, but he shied away from being the guy. He had the ability to be the guy. So often he led the team in scoring first game of the season. You know who else did that as a freshman? but sort of shied away from being the guy unless the opportunity presented itself. That's Grayson Allen. Now, I don't think that there's going to be a Grayson Allen type jump for Mitchell. There's just too much talent, too much returning talent on this Duke team for Mitchell to put up insane numbers. But Mark Mitchell should be a consistent double-digit score. There should be very few games uh, that Mark Mitchell dips below 10 points at all ever this season because he has such a gifted offensive game. And he's also such a tough defender. He's got an incredible motor and he can go chase the best player around the court. And I would expect him to be an all ACC defender. He was so underappreciated, so undervalued by everybody that, I mean, I was stunned when he didn't get at least a nod for either the all freshman team or the all defense team. I had him on both. I thought he was good enough for both. And I think this season he should make quite the jump. And I think a lot of that just has to do with taking the opportunities presented to him. Um, 13 is the third consecutive uh, new player added to the list. 13, I had Tyrese Proctor. Uh, Tyrese, some people might be like, oh, Tyrese, that seems a little low for Tyrese. It's like, well, you might not be remembering the start of the year. Tyrese Proctor was not impressive. I mean, dude was, when he shot a three, I closed my eyes at the beginning of the year. It was like, you pretty much knew it wasn't going to go in, but by the end of the year, that three-point shot was falling at a much more consistent rate. He was able to create shots inside on drives, create shots on the mid-range, but most importantly, he was handed the keys to the offense, and he ran the offense with poise, stability, and efficiency, and his growth and Lively's growth, those two things were probably the biggest reasons why that Duke team entered the NCAA tournament as a potential Final Four team. Um, Proctor made a lot of improvements, but still by the end of the year, at the end of the day, he's only averaging nine points, three assists. I could not reasonably put him any higher on this list. Um, but after next season, I anticipate he'll see a pretty pretty solid jump. I know there are a lot of guys um, that think Proctor might even be the best player 
for Duke next season. I'm not even close to prepared to say that. I think it, I don't think it's po- impossible, but I think a more healthy Kyle Filipowski, I don't see a world in which Proctor can put up the offense necessary. He'll run the offense. I think he'll see, uh, he'll, he'll make a jab at being the top assist guy in the ACC. But there were a few games where Proctor even broke 16. I mean, I can, I can count the amount of times he was, you know, 16 or more probably on one hand. Maybe it might take me two hands, but I think one hand. Um, I don't know. That, fact check me on that. I don't know if it's true. But I like Proctor at 13 now. He'll certainly move up. At 12, I have DJ Stewart. And DJ Stewart's a guy who's, who number-wise um, would probably be a few spots higher if the 2021 team wasn't the worst Duke team in a quarter of a century. Um, 13 points per game, and honestly, a weak year for ACC freshmen. If Duke was even a top five ACC team, he probably gives Scotty Barnes a run for his money and maybe even beat Scotty Barnes for ACC Rookie of the Year. But because of Duke's um, stumbling as a team, Stewart was hurt. And there's another guy that's a little bit lower on this list than his numbers may suggest because of how bad that team was, you know, missing the tournament. It's, it's, it's easier. It's the easiest season to write off missing the tournament for Duke only plays 24 games, including the postseason. Uh, they don't even get to finish the ACC tournament. They don't even lose in the ACC tournament. They get hoisted out by COVID. Um, so many games canceled. So, so much goes wrong. Jalen Johnson quits the team after 11 games. It's the easiest season ever to write off. But that doesn't mean that I can entirely write it off because it still happened and that team still was not successful, lost a lot of games that absolutely should not have. Uh, Stewart was not always incredibly efficient, but he was the second most dependable player on that team by far. You know, I mentioned the 13 points per game, also three assists per game was solid and he was maybe that team's best um, three-point threat as a guard. You know, not a lot of players took pressure off Matt Hurt, but DJ Stewart sometimes did. And that was big. He had one of the best freshman debuts. Uh, I think that we've, we've ever seen. He had 24 points against Coppin state, you know, offensively speaking. And I think that's forgotten by a lot of Duke fans. Uh, so I want to give a lot of respect and a big nod to DJ Stewart, but I've got him at, uh, at 12 on this list. Let's start going a little faster through this because I want to talk about the, the 10 season ranking as well. At 11, I had Trevor Keels, uh, he averaged 11 and a half points per game for a final four team started most of the season, but toward the end of the year was kind of replaced by Jeremy Roach in that lineup, uh, largely inefficient during chunks of the season. But when he was on, man, was he on 25 points against Kentucky the first game of the season. He's the second best player in the final four loss to UNC. He had 19 points in that game. He had 27 at Pitt. That game clinched the ACC regular season. Keels had some big moments, but he was also really inefficient for large chunks of the season. And that's why he he couldn't rise any higher on this list. At 10, I had A.J. Griffin, who averaged less points than Stewart and Keels, averaged less points than Keels on the same team, but efficiency is huge. I think he was a 44% three-point shooter, and that is quite the number. I mean, an absolute marksman from three. There are games where when he decided to create his own shot, and it made him the deadliest player on the floor, like the 27-point game at uh, Carolina, where he was just tearing UNC to, to shreds. Griffin was incredibly impressive, one of the best three point shooters Duke's seen in the 21st century. Uh, and, you know, he had struggles and he was dealing with injuries, 
And despite all that, he still earns a spot in the top 10. And number nine is going to be another guy that's really overlooked, and that's Cassius Stanley. Um, I think some people would fight me on putting Stanley over Griffin, but Cassius Stanley, 12 points per game, third best player for a team that was probably going to get a three seed, could have gotten a two seed if they got a chance to play in the ACC tournament. They looked really good at the end of the year, but Stanley proved a lot of people wrong in a lot of ways. He was not an incredibly tall player, only six foot four, um, often guarding guys bigger than him. And kind of the sentiment coming into the season was that he could only dunk, that he all he did was dunk. He was Zion, but he didn't have the size to pull it off. And he went out there and shot 36% from three. He was one of the team's best three-point shooters. You know, that wasn't an incredible three-point shooting team. He was one of the best three-point shooters on that team. Very reliable from the corners. Stanley was really good uh, and really good in a lot of big games. And I think that people forget about Cassius. It's a shame that his NBA career burnout uh, as quickly as it did because uh, he was a really good player at Duke. And I think that he, that goes forgotten because of the uh, season being cut off by COVID. And at number eight, we got Jeremy Roach. Jeremy Roach, and I wrote this in the article, is the perfect case study for the the craziness that is college basketball in the 2020s. You know, he commits to Duke prior to COVID. COVID hits, he does not get to play in the McDonald's All-American game because COVID hits. And then he starts the year during the full COVID year, 2020-2021. He's living in a hotel. Uh, there's no fans in Cameron. Um, the starting lineup is constantly changing for that team. It does not feel like Duke basketball. They're losing games. Everything feels odd. There's no crazies. Uh, and his role is kind of weird. He's you know, coming in and out of the starting lineup. He's not exactly a floor generally scoring eight points per game. He doesn't have, he's, you know, sometimes he's scoring 16, sometimes he's scoring two. Um, and not a lot of people are talking about him, despite the fact that he's a five-star recruit. He comes back in his sophomore year that still, you know, COVID's still a thing, but it's, it's, it's not really um, controlling the season like it did in 2020, 2021. Fans are back. He's not really a starter to begin the year, but he ends up a starter. And ends up a starter for a Final Four team, playing his best games in a Duke uniform in the NCAA tournament, winning games, knocking down a dagger against Michigan State, earning a lot of credit uh, with that stat, with the Duke staff and with the fans and everything, playing for Coach K's last team. He sees the pressure of that he plays on the the teams that that the team that loses in the Final Four to North Carolina. What an insane thing to happen in your first two years. In that third year, you are essentially the only player, rotation player, uh, Jalen Blakes didn't play as a freshman, uh, coming back for a brand new head coach. Every uh, Everyone else on the team is new. You're the only guy back. You're the guy ushering in a new head coaching era at Duke. Uh, you're the team captain, and you come in, and you get injured pretty early in the year, and you have to fight through that. As the season goes, you average 13.5 points per game. You fight, you get an ACC tournament championship. Then you come back for a fourth year. And he's he is the only player that has made it to his senior season included on this list, which is an impressive feat for a five star in today's game. Uh, Jeremy Roach has seen the uh, evolving of the transfer portal of the of NIL. You know he is he is the perfect case study, and he's an incredibly incredibly durable and impressive player. He's at nine hundred eighty points. He's twenty points away from the thousand point club. I love. 
talking about this. I'm a big stats guy. I'll be the first player in seven years to join the 1,000-point club. The last time it happened was Emil Jefferson, who literally coached him. Uh, and Emil did it in his fifth year in 2017. And so at number seven, right above him, I've got Mark Williams, just one of the greatest shot blockers in Duke basketball history. I mentioned it earlier. Um, had a solid offensive season, especially when they decided to involve him. You know, there were times where he wasn't incredibly involved in the offense. And I think that's why he only averaged 11 points per game, because for the most part, he was just a, a big lob threat. But Duke had a lot of guys that could find lob threats, more Roach, Boncaro on that team. And Mark Williams was just phenomenal. The ACC Defensive Player of the Year, uh, finalist for National Defensive Player of the Year, an All-ACC player. Uh, he was everything that Duke fans hoped he was going to be after his freshman year, except maybe not as prolific of a rebounder as the as you would have thought after that, those games in the ACC tournament where he was pulling in like 20 and 20. You, know, you would have thought that he would do a little bit more, but he took sort of a backseat rebounding-wise to Paulo. Then at number six, I got Matt Hurt. And this was probably my toughest decision was between he and the guy I put right ahead of him. Matt Hurt's 18.3 points per game was an ACC best that season. It is also the highest points per game mark of any player any year in the 2020s for Duke. He shot stupidly well from three, um, was just almost unguardable on jump shots. His high release was Dirk, Dirk Nowinski-like. It was insane to watch. He's one of the craziest offensive threats I've seen in a season. Uh, and it was so frustrating because he was he playing so well and that team just was doing so poorly. Um, he had 37 points against Louisville. That's the most points any player scored since J.J. Reddick dropped 41 on Texas in 2006. Matt Hurt, and I hated, I hated holding the fact that Matt Hurt never made the tournament against him because there's nothing he could do in 20. And there were so many other variables in 21, but it's like he, there, were just no, there was just no team success present on his resume and I hate holding that against him because it's really it's not his fault at all it's not his fault at all um but it was something that everybody else had on their resume and it was tough taking that into account at all especially when it came to Matt Hurt Matt Hurt's numbers from a pure numbers perspective uh is probably is top three or at least fourth but he fell to six um because a lot of because team success and because of his defensive struggles his defensive struggles were big. He probably had the best. Oh, he actually, he definitely had the best offensive season of any Duke player in the 2020s, in my opinion. Um, just as a pure score standpoint, there was uh, Duke hasn't had a player that I'm like, just give him that, give him the ball. I'd rather him shoot every single shot, you know, during the whole game than than the ball be shared. And that's that was the that was how I felt in 2020 2021 with Matt. Um, I hate only having him at six, but ultimately I decided to put Kyle Filipowski at five. He, aver he averaged less points, you know, just 15 points per game in his freshman year. And I wrote how I don't think I've ever seen a player be Duke's best player while also having so much room for improvement. Like Kyle, a lot of the times would miss chippers around the goal because he wasn't going up strong enough. He turned the ball over a lot. He made bad decisions a lot of the time. He was frustrating to watch at times, and yet he still had such dominant games. He was still so good. He was still in the player of the year race. He was still the ACC rookie of the year. And I think that speaks volumes to how good Filipowski is and how good Filipowski will be. He has so much room to grow. 
And I think honestly, and I, I wrote as a disclaimer at the, the beginning of the article that I didn't think that or that I wasn't factoring in what these players could be because otherwise Proctor would have been higher. But I think there was probably some part of me deep down below that was like, you know, Filipowski's a better player than Matt Hurt. You know that for a fact. His numbers don't really back it. I think ultimately what I what I what I'm going to say is my my biggest reason is the team success. The fact that he's the ACC tournament MVP and tournament champion best player on a, a five seed is uh, a big accomplishment for Filipowski. And the rookie of the year award is a, a big time thing as well. I didn't mention that Hurt was is Duke's only ever most improved player. So that's his award criteria that and first team all ACC. But ultimately, I mean, it was neck and neck. And I just. I think you know a week ago I was thinking about this and I had heard it five flip it six but when I sat down and wrote it I flipped it <laughs> pun intended uh, and at four I went with Wendell Moore Jr. You know his points don't stand out above Filipowski or Hurt ten points per game on his career thirteen as a junior at Duke just one of two players he and Roach to reach uh, upperclassman status on this list so Wendell Moore was is only one of three players since they began giving the positional national positional player of the award player of the year award out back in 2015. He's only the third blue devil to ever win one. Uh, RJ and Zion both won, you know, shooting guard and power forward respectively in 19. He won small forward of the year in 2022. Only blue devil to ever win that award. Um, just a phenomenal floor general, phenomenal leader. Uh, one of the only players to ever have a triple double at Duke. Um, you can't I mean, the growth that he saw from freshman to sophomore to junior year, but especially just his leap from sophomore to junior year was spectacular the player. He became the fact that he became a first round pick um, spoke volumes to the work that Wendell Moore put in, especially with his shot that that was an impressive growth. And at number three is Vernon Carey. Again, another player so disrespected. I mean, even if here's the thing for Carey, man, you know, rookie of the year uh, in the ACC national freshman of the year as well. Uh, consensus second team All-American, only one of two consensus All-Americans in the 2020s for Duke. Harry would have been the ACC player of the year had he been nominated. Um, or if he and Jones was were nominated, he would have been the guy to win because he was the only, he was unanimously selected for first team All-ACC. He had the most points on the ballot for All-ACC. Carey would have been the player and freshman of the year in 2020. He was an absolute tank in the interior. He'd stretch out and shoot it. Um, just a prototype, phenomenal college big man whose game, unfortunately, doesn't really translate to the NBA anymore. But Carey was great. And I think he is so easy to look past because, I mean, when you talk about his dominance, his numbers and his awards are in the same breath as Okafor, Williamson, Bagley. People are going to forget Carey. Because there's no postseason to attach with him. There's absolutely no postseason to attach with him. And then the next season is the most forgettable year of Duke basketball, you know, or that fans want to forget. Might not be that forgettable, actually. But, um, yeah, you know what I mean. But, like, Vernon, everybody looks past him. He was third. He could have gone higher. If there was a postseason, you know, depending on how Duke did in the postseason, he would have had a claim for, for first Ultimately, I considered three guys for first. Carry ends up at, at three. And at two, I have Trey Jones. I've got Trey Jones at two. Um, and I think that he could have easily been one. He's obviously the only ACC player of the year of the 2020s from Duke. And he is the only Blue Devil and only one of two players ever to win both player and defensive player of the year in the ACC. He was a third-team All-American by the Associated Press. Um, 
all ACC defender twice, all freshman team his freshman year, an elite passer who averaged almost six assists on his career, 16 points a game as a sophomore, uh, team leader, had multiple 30-point games, put the team on his back, one of the most extraordinary performances in school history uh, to put the team on his back and win at UNC. The iconic, you know, intentional miss and then buzzer beater to force overtime. Uh, just a kid that, that wanted it, wanted to win. You know, you saw the emotion on him when when that 2019 team lost to Michigan State in the Elite Eight. And you knew in your heart watching that kid that he wasn't going to let that happen the next season. He didn't have as good of a team, but man, he, he willed that team to win sometimes. And it's a real shame that he didn't get a, a shot to avenge that loss in the tournament in 2020. Uh, that I mean, that that tore me up inside back in 2020 that, that he wasn't going to get that chance. I ultimately went with him at second because of the team accomplishment and the pure dynamic skill of the guy at one. If you haven't figured it out already, it's Paulo Boncaro. Paulo Boncaro, I haven't won. Coach K's last All-American, his last number one overall pick, his last best player, his last, you know, All-ACC, first-team All-ACC guy his last rookie of the year, is the best player of the 2020s. He doesn't have the awards necessarily that Jones has. He is the rookie of the year, and he was. He is one of two consensus All-Americans. That is something that I put, they kind of put him over Jones as well, that Paulo was a consensus second-team All-American and Trey Jones wasn't. But Paulo also is the best player on a Final Four team, which is, you know, how many players in the can say that on this list? Just Paulo. Um, so team success, he played on the best team in the 2020s by far, was the best player on that team is the most talented player to play at Duke in the 2020s, and I don't think it's really particularly close. Um, just such a dynamic player that his numbers probably could have been even higher uh, if he had <laughs> if he'd shot more. Uh, there were times where I thought he should have shot more, like in the Final Four game against Carolina. I think if he took even more shots, Duke, Duke maybe wins that game. Um, but I think Paulo was the correct choice here, and I don't think he will be first next season. I think there will be a new number one next year. You got to read the article to figure out who that is. Although, if you <laughs> if you know Duke basketball, you can probably figure out who I think it's going to be. Um, I see that I'm at like the 30 minute mark right now, and so I know that I promised uh, the top 10 seasons in Duke basketball history, or the, not Duke basketball. What am I talking about? Top uh, ranking the last 10 seasons of Duke basketball. Um, but you know what? I'm going to get, I'm going to get more content out of me sitting down here and talking. I'm going to put that episode out next Thursday. So this, this episode is going to come out September 22nd. Um, and then I will drop the top, the ranking, the last 10 seasons next Thursday. I'm sorry that I've led you astray. If you really wanted to know this list, I truly do apologize. You're going to get it. It's going to come out next Thursday. I just don't want this to be an hour-long pod. Every episode is usually about 30 minutes. Um, but as always, man, thank you guys for listening to me ramble. The season is almost upon us. It's coming up. You know, We're uh, a month from yes- yesterday, as I'm recording this, a month from two days ago, as you might be listening to this. Uh, a month from that day is countdown to craziness. Um, so it's, it's really coming up. Uh, we'll probably have preseason rankings. Um, in October, and that'll be exciting. I anticipate Duke will be second, but it's going to be exciting to see it come out. And as the season approaches, um, the team's putting out a lot of content with the freshmen and the guys, and team chemistry looks great. I think this is a team that can have a really good chance at making a Final Four push. Uh, so it's real exciting. 
stuff coming up season on the horizon. Thank you guys for listening and uh, make sure you, you like and follow pod on whatever platform you're, you're listening on. Make sure you share the podcast and uh, tell a friend about it. Uh, thanks so much guys. And I'll talk to you next week.